The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We're continuing our summer series through the parables of Jesus, but first let's begin with prayer. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts that would want to follow you. And we ask this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Rejection hurts. It's a painful reality I realized in seventh grade. With a lot of gusto and a great amount of naivete, I, as a seventh grader, decided I was going to ask out Adrienne Monaghan. She was an eighth grader and a popular cheerleader and way out of my league. And so I, with great courage, asked her out. And she looked at me, down at me, and said, I don't go out with boys that are shorter than me. It hurt. It really hurt. But I did what I think anyone in their right mind would do and told myself things like, her loss Right? That she was overlooking what was right under her nose. <clears throat> it was painful. I know it was painful because I remember it. Adrian Monahan. It's a funny story which I know some of you can relate to. And if not, it's because you didn't have the courage to ask out Adrian Monahan. <laughs> but when we're rejected, it does really, really hurt. 
especially if it's a series of rejections and again and again kind of rejection from the same person or the same groups of people. And some of you know this, you've experienced it with your parents. It was a regular pattern in your childhood where you felt like you were an inconvenience, that you were annoying, that you were in the way of mom and dad's happiness. And there were micro-rejections that just happened over and over and over and over again. And some of you know this, in marriage or despite marriage, that despite your repeated attempts at finding someone to love you back, there's just not that connection. And we know that the only thing worse than wishing to be married when you aren't is wishing to be unmarried when you are. Rejection after rejection after rejection. And some of you know this professionally too. You've struggled professionally. There's been rejection after rejection. And it might not be a surprise to you to know that as a pastor, that's kind of a part of my job. I'm often rejected. Because a pastor often stands as a mirror of reality into someone's life. And most people just don't like reality. But it still hurts. I was on a hike recently and recalled to mind an instance like this where I was rejected as a pastor. And in case the man is listening, I'm going to refer to him as Tim, because why not? (laughs) Tim was an awesome guy, attractive, gregarious, outgoing, smart, a socialite, loud, and a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that he was into fun, not into faith. He didn't much care for Jesus, and yet we somehow developed a close relationship. I would call, and he would respond, and the place we would meet was not in a church. It was out over dinner or over drinks, and we would talk about many things, but we would always, or I should say I would always, try to make the conversation work its way towards God, and he knew it, and I knew it, There was no bait and switch, and I knew him. I knew the real him, not the social projection of himself as this carefree person, but actually as this person who was very restless inside, actually quite insecure. And we would talk time and time and time again, and I would try to introduce him to the idea of a life with God. And there was a point where I thought he was actually softening to the idea And then we planned another meeting, and we sat down for dinner and drinks, and that's when it happened. Tim rejected me. The food came out, and he looked at me across the table, and he said, Brent, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to hang out, and I don't want to hear about God, and I'll let you know if something changes. Ouch. I looked back at Tim, and I knew this was probably going to be my last word with him. And with tears in my eyes, I said, don't ignore the pursuit of God too long. And that was the last time I spoke with him to this day. I have no idea where he is. I have no idea how he's doing. I just know that I was the last corrective, life-giving voice in Tim's life at that point in his life. And he had not only ignored it, but he had rejected it. His heart had become callous to our time and time again 
discussion about God, and he had grown completely indifferent towards offer after offer after offer of mercy. That's the warning, in essence, in our parable today. It's, it's the parable of the pain and consequences of rejection. And so this morning, first, the parable, second, the problem, and then finally, the son. Uh, if you look at this parable, it's, it's unlike many of Jesus' parables, actually. It was clearly understood. So a lot of Jesus' parables were hard to understand, but not this one. This parable resulted in a common, unified response at the end from everyone who heard it. And it incited anger and a unified response, a cry out for justice. You can see it in the verdict in verse 9. The question was, what should the owner of the vineyard do? And the response in verse 9 is, destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. We know from Matthew's account, this wasn't just Jesus saying this out loud. It was also the entire crowd. It was a unified response, a response of judgment. That whatever happened in this parable was clearly and unmistakably understood as something awful to everyone. But this parable was not just clearly understood. It was also clearly referenced. The language from the opening lines in this parable, they're borrowed from Isaiah 5, which every trained Jewish ear would have picked up. It was an Old Testament parable that was given by Isaiah to the people of Israel as a judgment, as a prophetic warning. And so whatever was said there is wrapped up in whatever Jesus is saying in Mark 12. If you look at Isaiah 5 from our reading, it says, my beloved had a vineyard. It tells us he dug it and cleared it of stones. It tells us that he built a tower in the midst of it, the same kind of language. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then the concluding verse in 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in Isaiah 5, Israel is mentioned as a vineyard planted and tended by God, that he's taking care of it. But there's a warning against it for God's people. And it's for yielding what's called and repeated as wild grapes. Okay, this is not like wildflowers. We love wildflowers, especially in Austin, Texas. Don't touch them. They can be just as beautiful as the ones that we would purposefully plant. That's not what the language is, is here. The literal translation is actually, it yielded the stink of death. It's not so much wild fruit like we think of wild flowers. It's more so rotten fruit, literally death-smelling fruit that their life had come to stink of death. And that's why Isaiah later says bloodshed instead of justice, an outcry of wickedness instead of righteousness. That the people of God had come to reject God's voice so strongly that they had almost completely forgotten God's ways. And so God warns them he would remove his protection. He would break down the vineyard's walls. He would let it become a waste. And so here in Jesus' parable in Mark 12, the warning is similar, but the culprit has changed. He says a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Do you hear some of the same language? 
and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And the tenants took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so in Jesus' parable, the warning is it's not aimed toward the vineyard. It's not aimed toward the people of God. It's actually aimed to the tenants. Their name is the name that's repeated. And they were the caretakers of God's vineyard. They were playing the role of God from Isaiah 5. They were the spiritual leaders of the people of God. They were the clergy. They were the robe wearers. And those charged with the spiritual care of God's people were failing in it. They were using their positions of power and influence to actually take advantage of the vulnerable and of the weak. Jesus is mad about it. We're not too unfamiliar with this kind of story in our present day. In recent days, weeks, months, years, time after time after time again, there's stories of scandals in the church, of leaders using their positions to do atrocious things. I can't even mention most of it. It's devastating. It's awful. It's damnable. And so as you can see, even through my tears, no wonder then there's a public outcry, a unified response, a demand for justice. And much of it has been cast into the public eye through lawsuits, through podcasts, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, now through a new docu-series, The Secrets of Hillsong. It's just over and over and over again. I cannot, I cannot validate the veracity of any of the journalistic claims, but if any of it is true, it's awful. There's a spiritual leadership problem in the church. And it's no wonder then that some struggle to trust the church. Instead of justice, there is bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, an outcry of wickedness. And so I would tell you this parable offers an appropriate warning for all those in spiritual leadership, for those like myself. But church, the warning stands for you too. Isaiah 5 is enveloped in Mark 12. The sins of the people of God that were so notorious in the Old Testament are beginning to permeate the lives of the clergy of Israel in the New Testament. And Jesus simply won't stand for it. He's confronting it. And at its root, it's a problem of callousness to God's corrective voice and a problem of indifference to God's mercy. Return to the text with me. In verse two, it says, when the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And the tenants took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The, The people of Israel had a long history of rejecting God's voice through the voice of his servants. The prophets, messenger after messenger after messenger was sent, and most of them rejected 
and some of them killed. They responded to God's corrective voice in their life with a heavy callousness and even violence. And now Jesus is next in line. He's standing in their way. He's had enough. Listen to how Matthew's gospel records specifically specifically what Jesus says to them. He says, woe to you, scribes and elders, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the servants, the prophets, and you decorate their monuments, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But you witness against yourselves that you are those murdering the prophets. Strong words from Jesus. You know, it's fascinating. The only person or persons that Jesus speaks to this harshly It's not the sinners, it's the stubborn. He reserves his strongest words for those who give no ear and no place to correction and change in their lives. It's not for their mishaps that he speaks so harshly, it's for their hardness. And it makes you wonder, how could they become so callous, so opposed to correction, especially the clergy? And as a pastor, I have to tell you, I see this regularly, not just with the clergy, but also with you. It tends to be the people who perceive themselves as righteous enough. It tends to be the people who see themselves as good enough or maybe even better than. If if you take a history of prolonged religious devotion and you combine it with an overestimated view of your own goodness, you have a recipe for a calloused heart. It's not supposed to be that way. We're told by the very words of God that it is the contrite in spirit that he will not reject. We're told that it's it's the poor in spirit to whom the very life of God is given, that he rejects the proud, but he offers mercy to the humble. He's not turned away by our helplessness. He's turned away by our hardness. And friends, there's a great danger here. If you are a person who cannot be corrected, you will never be convicted. And if you cannot be convicted, you will never experience the life-giving mercy of God. The cost is too great to be calloused. And these problems are connected. A calloused heart grows indifferent to mercy's plea. Just look at the text again. Each servant sent is not just an embodiment of correction. It's really also an attempt at mercy. The tenants are not just rejecting correction, they're rejecting mercy altogether. Uh, In this day and age, it was not uncommon for a foreign wealthy landowner to own land and to lease it out to tenant farmers, to entrust to them the care of the land. It was also not too uncommon to see revolts from the tenant farmers because they often were mistreated by their wealthy landowners. But in the instances where there was a revolt, it was not only lawful but acceptable for the landowners to respond with swift justice and to quiet the revolt. The wealthy landowners would typically hire a small band of assassins, a mini militia, and they would go and take care of the rebellious tenants. And that being the case, those hearing Jesus' parable would not have thought it wrong for the owner to have done exactly this, but that's not what happens. 
What shocks their ears and is unexplainable to them was the owner's repetitive attempts at offering mercy instead of justice. The owner delays justice. Did you notice that? We we read this parable and often all we see here is judgment, but what's clearly shocking to those who heard it is how many times judgment is delayed by the owner of the vineyard. Time and time again, he sends an offer, a chance for mercy to triumph over judgment, and in their callousness, the clergy of Israel are indifferent to it. Our epistolary reading portrays the reality of this problem. It says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing? His kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It is because of your hard and impenitent heart that you are storing up judgment for yourself. The problem is not the meanness of the owner, it's the hardness of the tenants. They reject mercy's plea. If judgment is received in the end, it's actually what's deserved. No one gets what's undeserved in the end. It's not unfair. It's like when a child rejects his dinner. After multiple warnings that if you don't eat your dinner, you're going to be hungry when you go to bed. And then bedtime comes. And the child who rejected dinner many times screams, it's not fair. The problem is not a mean parent. The problem is a stubborn child. Multiple offers of mercy over and over and over and over. Sermon after sermon. Messenger after messenger. Friend telling hard truth after friend telling hard truth. And there's a rejection of it. And if you reject mercy, only justice remains. So you can see, friends, there's a great danger here too, to presume upon the mercy of God presented over and over to you again. And it is a true offer of mercy. The tenants took it and they dismissed it and they rejected it. As a matter of fact, they killed it. And so what would the owner of the vineyard do? It's actually something quite shocking and reckless. This is where we're gonna end. We, we learned something in this final portion of the parable, and it's maybe the most confounding part. The owner in the parable is also a father. It says the owner had still one other remaining, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. The owner sends his son after they had killed everyone else. No armies formed, no militia is sent. He sends his beloved son, and he sends him in the place of justice. He gives one last chance for mercy to triumph over judgment, and he knows it will likely cost his beloved son's life. He's the one to whom the entire vineyard belongs, and they reject him and they kill him. God the Father has done the same. 
It's a funny thing, the end of this passage. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament again, using another familiar Old Testament passage, but as a pun, as a play on words to drive the point home. In verse 11, he recites, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The the Hebrew word for stone is actually aben, which is strikingly similar to the Hebrew word for son, ben. And so when this was spoken out loud, it could just as easily be heard as the son that the builders rejected. And the Targum, the Aramaic rendering of the Bible, it actually translates it this way. It says the son that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the summary problem. That's the reason for such a unanimous outcry that the owner's son has been rejected and murdered. And they would kill him, wouldn't they? We know this. They would instigate it. They would make sure it happened. Even though he's the ultimate embodiment of God's mercy. His cross satisfying justice and opening the floodgates of mercy. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world already stood condemned. He told us that from his own mouth. He came into the world that it might be saved through him. Mercy effortlessly gushed from him. It's why the poor and the sick and the needy, when they would encounter him, do you remember what their common cry was? Have mercy on me. They knew it. Just not the proud. And like the owner of the vineyard, God is a father who overextends mercy through the sending of his son, His default is not judgment. His default is mercy. He has to be provoked to judgment. But for those who reject mercy, only justice remains. Uh, Dane Ortland, who's a he's a Presbyterian pastor and author, he wrote a book called Gentle and Lonely. It's a book that is describing the heart of God towards sinners, and he said this. Our deepest instincts expect God to be a thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing God. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. But the bent of God's heart is actually mercy. He is slow to anger. It takes much provoking to draw out God's anger. And this is why the Old Testament speaks of God as being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. Not once are we told that God is ever provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation, but his mercy is ready to gush forth. God needs no provoking to show us mercy. And so friends, will you receive it or will you reject it? The son is the key. Your life does not have to be a parable of rejection. And so today, if you can hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Receive mercy's plea. Amen. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you show to us in Christ Jesus. And we confess together, all of us, clergy and church, our tendency towards ignoring your voice and presuming or even dismissing your life-giving mercy. 
and your gracious offer of it in Christ Jesus. So forgive us, and by your Spirit, I pray, would you soften our hearts once again. Amen.